is The Business of Being Human. I'm Christine Hildebrand. And I'm Wendy Horn Brower of Intune Collective. We help leaders like you reinvent how you lead and operate, connecting you and your companies to greater possibility and performance. From joy to awareness to consciousness and capacity building, we know that business as usual isn't business at all. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Business of Being Human. I'm Christine Hildebrand, and I'm so excited to bring you this next episode. We are here with special guest Scott Johnson. Scott is a founder and technology entrepreneur. For the last three decades, has founded two companies. He was CEO and founder of Workfront, which was a management work management solution, and now is CEO and founder of Motivosity. Motivosity is a software platform that helps employees be happier at work through tools that generate gratitude and connectivity. Scott, welcome. I'm so happy. We're so happy that you're here today. Christine, really nice to be here with you today. Likewise. Well, we are really inspired by Motivosity in general. And you and I had an opportunity to meet at HR West in Oakland in March of this year. And it was so magnetic, the energy that your team had and what your company represents. And so I'm really excited to dive into what you've built as a culture at Motivosity, but also your role as CEO, because I know you have navigated in the course of your career some really important hurdles that I know a lot of our client CEOs are facing. So when you and I were having conversations, I'm like, we need to get you on our podcast to really share what you have experienced, how you've navigated the hurdles, and mostly how you have managed to balance scaling business operation and building a culture where people want to work. So we're super excited to have you. And um, in the course of our conversation today, we're going to deep dive into four areas. One of them, which we've talked about, Scott, is balancing the CEO role between investor, board pressure, and true organizational capacity. And you had some great comments to say about that in terms of how you pivot to and satisfy the relationships at fundraising levels and investor and board advising and building your leadership team and pivoting to your organization. So I'd like to start there and just have you give us some insights about what your experience has been, and certainly in this time as the CEO of Motivosity, what you're facing as well. Yeah, good. Well, that is the big challenge for CEOs, and there aren't a lot. Right now at Motivosity, I have the um, freedom and I guess the uh, you know the luxury of being able to make our own decisions. We don't have any investors. We don't have outside pressure, and mm-hmm. we're able to stay true to our business and stay true to our vision. That's not often the case, though. And uh, looking back on my career, and and I'm also an investor in various other companies, and and. I think oftentimes I'm I'm the one investor that helps the entrepreneur make true decisions, not investor serving decisions. And that's really important. So you look at, you know, if you start at the highest level and you say, well, how often does corporate America or corporate world make smart decisions? And there's a lot of, a lot that's broken in companies and, my experience, you know, as I look back on my first company, I was a, a young entrepreneur. I cared about solving a problem. I wasn't an MBA graduate. In fact, I my, my I graduated in a in a field of study called Near Eastern Studies, which is about as far away from technology as you can possibly get, and it's also about probably about as far away from business as you can possibly get. I mean, I I work on translating Dead Sea Scrolls for part of a senior project. Like that's where, that's where my mind was. So you get in, you start a company and uh, you have the vision of where it needs to go. And you have people who are on board who are part of that vision and, and everybody, you know, the excitement is about solving the problem. 
And then you bring on an investor and the, the focus starts to become more of make money and grow as fast as possible and, and grow at all costs. And you start to feel this pressure from your new boss, who's your investor. And you look at them like, wow, they really know everything. They invest in a lot of companies and they see a lot of problems. Like I really should do, I really should follow their, their exam, you know, follow their advice. And, and right. uh, what that, what that results in is first of all, a couple of things, a couple of dynamics that kind of ruin a lot of things. One is the, uh, Stress put on extrinsic stress on a CEO coming from investors and other people who are hammering you all the time translates into stress on the management team, which translates to stress on the middle management team, which translates to demoralized and nervous employees. And that's really not a healthy dynamic at all. It's terrible. And, uh, that that is is really common, and then and then the next uh, the next dynamic that gets introduced is um, these people who have gotten uh, MBAs and gone off to be consultants at Bain for a while, and then they land at a venture capital company, mm-hmm. and next thing you know, they're the one that's on your board. They haven't often times actually built companies or sat in the seat and, you know there are there are investors and out there that are that have been operators but a lot of times they haven't and they don't like the idea of mission is lost on them because it's all business formulas and they did you know robotic i guess you could say in terms of looking at how to grow a business, they look at it from, hey, you know, what, how do we push this investment to, to have a 20x return or go bust? Really? Right. That's right. kind of what it, what it boils down to. And so they're not sensitive to the idea of, of mission. And so they're, and the people that are, that are aligned with that mission. And so their idea of fixing problems uh, oftentimes becomes, who do we need to replace to move the business forward? Like that's like the first question. Right. And maybe, maybe that's sometimes is an, an appropriate question, but sometimes that's not an appropriate question. And, you know, I know as, as I look at my career, I've kind of had a, a bifurcated career here in terms of management style. And, and one management style was the impatient guy who, fired people to solve problems and upgraded and and tried to find new talent and the second style is a guy who believes in people who if something is going sideways you provide air cover or you provide coaching or you look at like are we going to get be able to get from point a to point c and 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 looking at people's strengths and accepting that every strength has a corresponding weakness. And if yeah. you just understand and you choose the strengths that you want, mm-hmm. then you provide air cover by finding other, other resources that can fill in the gaps on weaknesses rather than just say, I don't like your weaknesses. You're, you're gone. And so I really like phase two of my career better than phase one. I want to really get into the phase two, because what you've done at Motivosity is certainly reflective of that. But I have a couple questions about what you mentioned about the CEO board dance and CEO investor dance. You know, I, I, you know, companies are mission driven, people driven and certainly outcome driven right? Because I think all leadership teams want growth, but they want to do it maybe potentially in in a timeline that may not be fitting with the investor. The investor may be looking at exits that are on a different timeline. I think the savvy investors are really getting behind the people part of the business, as you're saying, and really understanding the true organizational capacity and managing to that. 
um, and and working from an empowered space. But what would you say to the CEO that is currently stuck in the middle of that dynamic of investor pressure versus like what his team is truly capable of doing? Because I know that there's sort of like an affiliation with the CEO. Does the CEO have to make a choice? Like what side does he stand on or he or she stand on? Yeah. Um, oftentimes, you know, the only response I can offer up when I'm talking to a CEO who's telling me their woes about how their hands are tied or they feel like their hands are tied or they can't make the decisions they want to make. And um, oftentimes the only advice I can offer up is that sucks. <laughs> 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 yeah, um, that's uh, you know, that's they're like my hands are tied, and I don't feel like I have the power to do this or that. And this is what the company needs, and I've been given marching orders to do something right. else. You know, sometimes those marching orders come because somebody wants to um, pretty up the business to sell it right now, and so you really mm-hmm. kind of hollow out the business to prepare for that. And you know that you're wrecking your company and you're demoralizing everybody. And yeah, just like a really not a good place to be. Right. So what's the role of truth in that particular dynamic? Because it feels like if everyone had their cards on the table in terms of what they were really looking for, that that becomes a place of negotiation, right? That's where you start. Um, And what are the rules of engagement? As you were mentioning earlier around fear-based leadership, right? It's like they're going to get rid of people if they're not performing and that it creates a system of fear. So I I look at those two things, like having an honest and truthful conversation around what's really going on and what what does everybody need in this equation and how can we lay that out on the table and and how do we manage differently instead of from fear, but manage from empowerment? And there has to be some solution in there because, and I feel like really in business right now, we're redefining all of this because the old paradigms are completely in dynamic transformation. So we really can come to the table with more transparency, more truth, and more acknowledgement of what really is going to work for the people in the organization, the CEO who has to pivot and manage both of those dynamics, and be honest about what's going to really work and what is the motivation. Because I think we can create what my friend Ed Martin says, omni-wins across the board. So how do we get to an omni-win in that particular situation? Because I feel like a lot of companies, unlike where you are with Motivosity, are in that dynamic or in that situation. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, what you said about a uh, creating a fear-based system is probably part of the key. That doesn't just apply for, for what happens downstream, but it also is the relationship between the CEO and the, the board, which typically the, you know, the investors, plus a couple of independents and if it were me, I would want to work in a company where the CEO would be willing to say, you guys got it all wrong. And yeah. this is what this company needs. And every company is different. And this company, I know this is what this company needs. And to be willing to go to bat and basically just stand up and say, you guys are, you're, you're all wrong. And let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. Now, Fear comes in because it's super easy for the board to say, okay, fine, we'll find a new CEO. Right. And everybody's afraid for their job, sadly. You know, there aren't very many people out there who are the kind of people that would be like, well, this is the right thing to do. So that's what I'm going to do. If you want to fire me, then fire me. Yeah. So standing up for what the CEO really believes is right for the company, right for his team right for his organization. And, and that's courage, right? That's definitely courage. And then not, not being in fear yourself as a CEO about what would happen if you do that. 
these are these are really interesting times. We are we are paving new pathways. So courage is definitely a, a characteristic that's needed for sure, especially from our leaders. Scott, can you talk a little bit about what you were saying, like phase one of your career versus phase two of your career? Because I think it's leading into the next topic of building a winning leadership team. And you, you and I have had conversations about how you used to lead as a leader, as a CEO, and where what you are finding now that is really creating success for you and what you're seeing. So could you share with us a little bit about how, you know, your phase one or phase two experience? Yeah. So, you know, uh, way back at the beginning, Workfront for me was an all-in bet. Uh, We bootstrapped the company for seven years. Uh, When I started it, I had three young kids at home. I had a mortgage. My wife was stay-at-home mom. I was the only source of income. I didn't have a lot of savings. I took out a uh, second mortgage to pay for employees and uh, paid, you know, managed my life on as many credit cards as I could get. So it was uh, 100% all in, and that creates its own level of stress. And so it's basically the only option is to win. And in in that industry, it was very competitive. I mean, our big competitors were Microsoft and Hewlett Packard and Computer Associates at the time. And um, I I think our nearest competitor had something, you know, like 150 employees and I had four. (laughs) And we're trying to win. And, uh, you know, it grew into a company that was 1,500 employees and, and did really well. But that that sort of commitment to, hey, we're going to win caused me to gravitate to become a person that's like, well, if you're not all in, then you're all out. And uh, it was not a – it was an environment where I took the time to be patient and coach or – to even look at strengths, it was all about, hey, we have to fix all the problems and we have to fix them today. And as an example, we stopped for dinner. We had a regular thing where we would stop and watch an episode of The Office around 10 p.m. and have dinner and then get back to work. Wow. So it was a, you know, it was a pretty all-in environment. And when the investors came in, and so that founded that company in 2001, investors came in in 2007, it was easy for me to adopt that that way of thinking of hey let's let's solve problems by replacing people and we replaced a lot of people and mm-hmm. when investors came in in 2007 we had bootstrapped it from 2001 to 2007 and in 2007 investors came in and it was for them it, they want to grow the company and and i'm the inexperienced entrepreneur and so I'm thinking these these guys know everything. And they, they, generally, you know, theoretically, investors want to make money. I want to succeed. We should be aligned. Like that should be a perfect alignment. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of ways to to succeed, and and uh, you know, some of the some of the kind of de facto ways that we looked at problems was by replacing people, and we didn't take time to do a lot of coaching and a lot of skill improvement, or even observing people's strengths. It was more like, hey, we have a, a problem here. Let's who are we going to hire and bring in. And so, you know, if the first phase is characterized by just moving on and, and upgrading people, the second phase is characterized by sitting down with people and outlining what success looks like. And Success is either the results or the types of behaviors that you need to see. And I've come to the understanding that if you're clear about the results and that everybody can understand that there's there's multiple ways to get to the results. Yeah. And if there are some if there are some gaps, uh, it's totally okay. And if we feel like it's an awkward thing to say, hey, you you know you're no good at this but I still love you. But that's really <laughs> what, what coaching is, is, Hey, there's some, you know, to get from A to point A to point B, 
there are some things we need to do, and this is what the organization needs to look like, and these are the kinds of things that we need to see happening, and these are some things that I'm not seeing happening. Are you on board for getting those things to happen, and what help do you need? Yeah. And that's a much more fun conversation to have than, hey, we've decided that you're out of gas. Right, because I think that just circling back to the investor conversation and developing strategy at a top level, it's not often chats within the organization about, well, what do you need in order to achieve these goals? And, and if success looks like this, and we're all in agreement that this is what success looks like, what is, what is required for you? What do you personally need as an individual leader, whether you're managing a functional area or you're a director or a manager, what do you need in order to be successful? How can we empower you to achieve this goal that we're looking at? Which is what I hear you saying. Yeah. Yeah. And then have the willingness to, uh, to work through it because you might take six months extra time to get somebody up to where you want them to be. Or you might hire somebody in six months, realize that you didn't hire, like you made a wrong hire. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a lot more constructive, a lot better for the team, a lot better for morale to do the former. Right. And, and, to, and to take the time to develop people. Yeah. So building this idea of building a winning leadership team, can you talk to a little bit about you know, as part of your phase two, you mentioned coaching, but what are some of the things that you believe that have helped you build a winning leadership team? And what are some of the hurdles you've had to overcome in order to do that? Yeah, I guess for starters, what I look for is uh, people who are aligned with our mission as a company. And again, we have the luxury of having an, a crystal clear mission internally everybody knows it everybody understands it and it's a mission that actually can attract talent just on its own what is your mission scott can you share it yeah our mission is to help people be happier about being at work yeah and so our like everything we do is designed to help people really have a better work experience and that's based in the idea that we only get one life and we spend a lot of our time at work that we're awake, like the majority of our time, we spend more time with our coworkers than we do with our families. And it shouldn't be just a job. Like yeah. this is part of your life experience. And so as such, it needs to count for something more than just a throwaway that you do to fund everything else that you do. And uh, so that's what we care about as a company. And, well, that's a wonderful mission. It's it's important to find people who truly believe that, who who demonstrate that in their life even before they come and answer an interview question. Like, and so uh, our people are we call them movers at Motivosity, and uh, every single person is somebody who already believes this and acts on it in their own way in their personal and professional life before they ever come to us. Yeah. It's a wonderful mission to magnetize people around. And certainly, I think with the great resignation and the pandemic and the whole soul searching of like, what is meaningful work to all of us, that I believe everyone is really doing that investigation and that discovery. And so that mission of helping people be happier at work is um, so well-timed. Did you plan that out? You launched the company in 2013, but did you plan, did you plan on this kind of relevance to the marketplace? Well, I always believe so when we first started, by the way, nobody was really interested in what we were doing. Um, there are a lot of companies that and we kind of we most closely align with the with the recognition, like rewards and recognition category. And there are so many companies who believe that employee recognition just means giving people stuff and yeah. giving people stuff doesn't really make life changing uh, impact on people. It's like, Hey, thanks. And Monday comes around and work is work. So, yeah, I mean, for probably, I don't know, geez, like 
five years, it was uh, it was pretty tough. Like there weren't a lot of companies that were that were visionary enough to to see past the stuff in employee recognition. And in fact, there were a few years I uh, my common comment about the company was I, I think it would be easier for us to sell nuclear waste. Like I think we could make more money selling <laughs> nuclear waste than we could selling the software. <laughs> and then um, the pandemic hit. Uh, yeah, yeah. And even before that, like probably a year and a half before that, we could see the trend, like all of a sudden companies are starting to wake up. And I think the trends are still in our favor. Like you're still a visionary company if you see past the stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, but more and more companies are coming to that conclusion that, hey, we've got people all over the world We've got people that are working in dis-separate dis- lo- locations now. Um, there are a lot of mental health issues now that people mm-hmm. are carrying burdens now that they were never carrying before. And they there's no place for them to recharge. There's no connectivity. There are a lot of people out there that just feel invisible. And mm-hmm. what, what we do answers like solves those problems. And so the trend is, is in a good place for us right now. And um, yeah, the uh, great resignation is, is a real thing. And the, the pandemic definitely changed. I mean, we're, we're two years into this. Who would have thought, right? right. It feels like seven years, by the way, but yeah. Well, we thank you for helping companies with workforce culture and we, you know, at Attune are working a lot with organizations, leadership teams to not only build leadership teams that are cohesive and anchored around their mission, but also how they're modeling their values in building cultures. And super important, you know, DE with the emergence of DEIB and having relevance to a changing workforce, not only in the in the qualities that you're bringing, like gratitude and coaching and support and empathy and belonging. Those are really important things. You know, we were both at the HR West conference and there was a lot of discussion where speakers and and, um, other companies are sharing what is actually motivating to workers right now to bring their disposable energy, their commitment, their hearts to the work that is going to create this regenerative experience of happiness, but also contribution to the collective whole. And you're kind of immersed with companies that, you know, you're helping them with the vehicle of building belonging, building that connection and cohesion. What would you say from your perspective, not only as the CEO of Motivosity, but what would you say your perspective of what you're witnessing in your companies that are really the actions that leadership teams are taking that are really building sort of the workforce cultures of the future? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of, I'm a huge fan of positive psychology. It's emerging discipline. It's not that old. And Positive psychology really unlocks people's potential and enables uh, a much higher motivation than anything else you can pos- possibly do. And it's all centered around finding, looking for what's good and reinforcing what's good. And that creates a virtuous cycle. So what we see that makes a huge difference, and I've seen this in my own company, it's kind of interesting. It starts with how do you motivate people to have a, a gratitude-centric viewpoint? And that's where we hack the equation is right there at that point. Like there actually is a simple way to motivate people to be more grateful. And it has to do with loss aversion and a dollar. And that sounds really simple and dumb, but the idea is if I gave you a dollar and said, hey, go give this to somebody you appreciate, you would do that and you would have this great experience because you would you would generate rapport, you'd have a tighter connection with that person. You would be just as positive, like you would have just as much of an emotional bump as the person receiving the dollar. And it wouldn't be about the dollar. It would be about the what motivated you to go do that. And what motivated you would be me saying, hey, here's a dollar. Go say, go give it to someone that you appreciate. 
And so that's where, where we hack that equation. But what happens is as people show that gratitude in the company, uh, it creates more gratitude in the kind so it's a virtuous cycle and, and every time that interchange happens it creates additional like one grateful person on a team creates three grateful people on a team it's viral and yeah it has this, this this viral impact and as you are appreciated you try to find more reasons to be appreciated in a company mm-hmm. and so you look for more problems to solve and you look for more ways to help other people. And Mm -hmm. as you do that, then the company starts winning more. Like the energy level just starts going up and up and up because you got people who I like being thanked. I I'm going to find more ways to help. I see more reasons to thank people. You know, it's just, it's like a stepladder that just keeps elevating and it creates a super cool dynamic where you can just almost feel the energy when you, well, you, you talk about the energy that my team and yeah, if you want to experience awesome energy, like just talk to somebody on our team. It's really yeah. kind of, um, kind of inspiring. Well, in the metaphysical circles, gratitude as an energy is the source of all creation. It is the frequency of which abundance is generated. So it's sort of like the grease that creates momentum and growth. But we don't realize if we focus on gratitude that it'll actually get us to some of our outcomes because we're focused or we have been focused on the outcome. Because if I take my eye off the at that outcome, then it may not happen. So that's sort of like sometimes the false belief. But I'm I'm a big practicer of gratitude in my life. In fact, Intune wrote an ebook on gratitude and the importance of gratitude and how it can generate a lot of things and in, in terms of not only creating more and uniting more people, but changing your whole experience as a leader or as a employee or as a human. It really does change your experience. And Oprah has been talking about it, and I'm a big fan of hers, about creating a gratitude journal. So it's really amazing that you've taken a um, software platform and embedded gratitude in it, essentially, as a way to fuel belonging and connectivity in, in, in an organizational culture. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is super rewarding. And we wish that all the CEOs understood. I mean, just not too long ago, a CEO said, you know, you, you, you talk about gratitude and how important gratitude is for their people and, and all these mm-hmm. important concepts. And then the response back was, well, we're just going to give everybody a $500 Costco card this year. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. okay. That's sort of, sort of showing gratitude, but you get it. You go to Costco on the weekend and Monday, it's the same old work environment. It isn't yeah. daily and it isn't, uh, you know, it's not that bi-directional virtuous right. cycle. So on that note, Scott, like how does the CEO and the leadership team model this gratitude concept? And how, because really if, if structures or organizations are going to transition, it has to start with the CEO, honestly, and then it ha- and it builds out with the leadership team, and then it's the viral effect. But if that if that core, if that essence of the organization is not the genesis of cultivating gratitude, we find that it it doesn't it doesn't really work, right? Even though that the culture, the employee culture, may be hungry for it. So, what would you say? to the CEO or the leadership team about what is important for them to create cultures where people feel this happiness and belonging outside of handing them a $500 Costco card. You know, if, if you had a friend or if I had a friend who would only do something for you, if you did something bigger or better for them, what kind of friend is that? Like it's, it's not a good friend. It's, you know, it's, 
there's a weird dynamic there and and leaders and companies are so used to looking at everything in terms of ROI that they become blind to some of these softer concepts about investing in their people. I think wellness is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. So many companies have a wellness program because it lowers their insurance premium. Like they don't care about if the wellness of their people, they care about lowering their insurance premium. So it's like, well, I'll give you a wellness program as long as it, I save money. And so the motivate, you know, when it comes to concepts around gratitude, your, your, um, your motivation needs to be really authentic and pure. And uh, it's important. Like, it's important for leaders to be comfortable with investing in people on a, on a more authentic level than just the ROI conversation. Like everybody's read the books. There's so many books about culture and taking care of people and it's all book learning until you're willing to invest in it. Like put your money where your, you know, where your mind is. Right. Um, And I shared with you in one of our previous conversations that one of my mentors, Fred Reed, who started Virgin America Airlines, said, if you take care of your people, meaning your leadership people, they will take care of their team. And so it is a viral effect. And so by doing things as the CEO, like taking your team to a leadership team offsite and really focusing on connectivity and regeneration and connection versus focusing your leadership team offsite on what can we get done in our OKRs and how can we solve these business dynamics. It's really important to be able to come together and build relationships so that the business can be smooth. Business is happening that's smooth. But also cultivating the skill of what gratitude means. I think that is some of the key things that we help organizations do or leadership teams do is to what, how do you define gratitude? How would this work for you to show up? How is it modeled? When someone is acknowledging you or sharing appreciation, how do you want that done? And so we facilitate conversations with leadership teams so that they can define what it is that the the gratitude means to them, or for that matter, like what respect means to them, if that's a key value proposition value for them. But how does it show up in in behavior? And and getting them to all agree that they value the same thing and that they're defining gratitude in the same way so that they can have a common language or a common agreement around how they're going to create the viral aspects of gratitude. That, that feels like a really important step to take. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I also think that it's important to recognize that everybody's in a different place along this journey. And some people are really comfortable with what you would call ideal gratitude. And some people are like for them saying, Hey, good job is huge. And you wouldn't want to knock on somebody for saying, you know, Hey, we needed you to express more and have a better, you know, gratitude look more like this it's like hey maybe that's like really good for that person so you just have a huge a huge range of where people are in their uh um but conceptually they're all they're all connected and bought in to the idea that they're going to participate in it at at the level that feels comfortable for them yeah, exactly. And I, I think another thing that's important in, in coaching leadership teams is to help them recognize the the generational differences in why people are coming to work. Remember when we were having the all the uh, consternation about millennials in the workplace? Like, mm-hmm. what are we going to do about the millennials? They're the worst. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're figuring that out. Uh, I always looked at it like, Maslow's pyramid, you know, Maslow, he's got the hierarchy of needs and at the bottom level, you've got, you know, shelter and safety and and the middle is more around security and comfort and and then your self-actualization at the top. Well, if you look at the generations of workers, our grandparents went to work for shelter, like 
food yeah. and shelter. Food. And yeah. if they got it, that was their whole motivation for working. And my parents, uh, it was more around, hey, I get two weeks of vacation. I have a 401k plan and some insurance and we can have two cars. And like, that's the motivation for, so the bonuses mm-hmm. and the, you know, the comp structures were all around that. Then enter millennials and they like, I want to go change the world. And I'm going to go find myself and I'm going to quit a perfectly good job and go find myself in Tibet or whatever. Right. And um, it was exactly because that's where they sort of were on this pyramid. And so when you have somebody who's at the bottom level as a manager and they're like, Hey, your paycheck is why you're here. Now go get to work. They totally don't get it because they're in a different level the pyramid Mm -hmm. and they need to understand that there are things that motivate people that are completely foreign to them and they just need to accept that hey this might not resonate with you mr leader or miss leader but this is what is going to work for your for your teams generally yes absolutely you know the other topic i wanted to cover today with you scott is this idea that CEOs and CHROs, like chief of people, have had to form a more intimate connection over the last three, two or three years, spurred by obviously the pandemic and supporting remote and hybrid work dynamics and dispersed teams. And as you were saying earlier, mental health and all the different things that humans need to hold in this time. And obviously we're facing some really strong dynamics and transformations here in the U.S. But the people, the head of people is really transformed in terms of their role, particularly with you as the CEO. And I'm curious what you feel like you've had to face around maybe getting more involved in the people side of the business and not necessarily have your head of people um, handle it on his or her own that it's really about a strategy consideration and an overall company health consideration versus a HR functional area consideration. So I'm curious about how the dynamics of the great resignation and the pandemic and this talent market that that businesses are competing in and how that's changed your relationship with your head of people. Yeah, first of all, I love to see when the chief people officer, preferably chief people officer, but CHRO too, uh, has a seat at the table and has a close relationship with the CEO. So many times the concepts of culture get delegated to HR and sometimes HR reports into finance and doesn't even... Or operations, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a huge mistake in today's environment uh, because the people is really our competitive advantage as a yeah. company. And if the people aren't aren't happy and aren't uh, aren't motivated, and if there's some issues or there's people are feeling like they're beat up all the time, it's going to reflect on the company and on the customers and customer satisfaction and innovation and all, all the things that a CEO would care about. So why shouldn't, why would a CEO not care about the people problems um, when the CEO cares about all of the problems that are a result of the people problems? And mm-hmm. so I'd love to see close relationship between HR and, and the, uh, the you know chief executive and, and love even more to see chief executive who actually gets that people have feelings. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're certainly doing something right with an EN, ENPS score of 97%, which is amazing. You're saying everyone's feeling the magic and loves the company culture. So you're you're definitely doing something right over at Motivosity for sure. And congratulations on all of your success. I wanted to just wrap up our conversation and have you talk about this concept sharing earlier in one of our conversations around playing your own game. And I just, I think that there's so much there as a CEO um, for you to not only uh, define what it is, but to be, to be really anchored 
and aligned with what that is and communicating it with certainty and strength and leadership. And so I just I just wanted you to share a little bit about what you mean by that, because you are certainly playing your own game, whether it's phase two, phase three, phase four, phase five. And so um, just appreciate your your insights and what you've shared with us today. Yeah, playing your own game is hopefully I can hopefully I can kind of summarize this because it touches on not just how we are at work, but how we are in our personal lives as well. And the the idea behind playing your own game is that you set aside all of the non-authentic influencers that cause you to want to look successful or be like somebody else or you know fear of missing out is another one and so there's there are decisions that we make sometimes that are that are based in fear or based in worried that you don't look like you're measuring up or worried that somebody else is going to um go out and and and, and win and you're not and and mm-hmm. so sometimes you make a decision that's based in trying to keep up with the with the joneses and and as an entrepreneur, I mean, I, I definitely feel that uh, I, my peers, some of them, you know, you, you start a company and maybe you're growing really slow. You're trying to get the foundation right. And there's a cheap way that you can grow, but, you know, it'll be it'll be wrong. And you see your, your peers, are, they look like they're super successful. They're growing really fast or raising a lot of money. You don't know what's going on under the hood over there it just looks like they're all right and high and uh, that could cause you to sort of feel like you're failing and that can translate into stress down on your team and down onto their teams or it could cause you to adopt a game plan that really isn't the right game plan for for long-term success and so you trade long-term success for short-term success because you want to look like you're keeping up with everybody. And uh, that's a hard thing to do because you kind of have to be willing to say, I don't need money. And in a personal life, the same thing. Like, I don't need to look like I'm successful. Like I'm just doing my thing. And uh, that's, that's hard to do. I mean, it's, there's always the pressure to make more money. And uh, it's really, it's really, you have to be really, I think, um, make a determined, a deterministic choice that you're going to do the right thing. And then hopefully the money comes at some point. Yeah. Well, I know um, you've certainly adopted that and, and the idea of gratitude and, and it feels like, um, that it's working for you, playing your own game, Scott, it's working for you. Yeah, uh, I've got an example of not playing my own game early on. So when I started Workfront, the whole pet peeve was to be a no-nonsense way to manage work. And uh, um, it was designed for marketing agencies to really make, because before Workfront, I started a marketing agency. So I, I like, that was my pet peeve. Like work doesn't work the right way for marketing groups. So that was a problem it solved. And as we started trying to go out and make a buck and I had to make a buck, I didn't have investors. I didn't hey, like, it was, Hey, we have to make a buck. People were asking us to do all kinds of things that took us deeper and deeper into the academic area of traditional project management, which has a lot of warts. Like there's a lot wrong with PPM as an industry and a lot of people don't get value out of it. And yet the Gartners and the analysts were coming in, you know, if you're going to be a winner in this space, you got to do this, this, and this. Well, um, after like nine years, we realized that we had spent nine years chasing something that literally delivered no value to our customers. And at that point, we had all kinds of customers in all kinds of industries, and we went back and realized that to really grow the company, we needed to trim up and focus on marketing agencies 
<laughs> and so we went back and did that and that's really what made the like that really was a boost to the company and i just can't help but thinking that if we had played our own game and stayed true to the original vision like we could have maybe avoided six or seven years of chasing around chasing a dream that didn't really exist yeah so there you have it, everybody, experience directly from Scott Johnson, CEO of Motivosity, to play your own game and to be authentic to your core mission, your core values as a CEO, and to trust, right? A lot of trust you're talking about. And from experience, it feels like you've navigated not trusting to realizing how much trust and faith you need to have. Um, so I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us today and good luck with everything happening at Motivosity. We are huge fans at Intune and look forward to watching your continued success as a company and as a leader. So thanks for being here, Scott. Hey, awesome. Thanks for the opportunity. It's fun talking to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everybody, and stay tuned for more The Business of Being Human at our next episode. Have a great day. If listening to The Business of Being Human has intrigued you, inspired you, encouraged you, we would appreciate it if you rated and left us a review on Apple Podcasts. This will help others find the show. The Business of Being Human is a production of Intune Collective. It is produced and edited by Elizabeth Joy Windham. Executive producers are Christine Hildebrand and Wendy Horn Brower. Our theme music is by Adrian Walther. It is called Empowered. Cover and episode art is by Lisa Hardy. You can find all of our episodes and learn more about the services of Intune Collective at IntuneCollective.com.